Hey, everybody. Um, for y'all who don't know, my name is Christian. I am a member here at Ridgetop. Um, and today we're going to continue talking about Advent, um, a season where we look forward and hope and anticipate the coming of Jesus. Uh, so we've done this throughout the last weeks and lit candles representing different words like joy um, and the joy of expectation of Jesus' coming, of hope, like what we saw from Hannah who hoped and God delivered on her hope, gave her a child. Um, and today we're moving into another miraculous birth story that is helping prepare and anticipate for us what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Um, and so just by way of reminder, I want us to read Genesis 15, 4 through 6. It should be behind us. Um, but a, a few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham and Sarah's story um, of a couple who was said to be extremely old and past the days of bearing a, like being able to have a child. Um, and God, seeing them, uh, said in Genesis 15, 4, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Um, so we saw even a few weeks ago the pattern begin of people receiving promises from God and hoping in hopeless situations um, and their hope being a, uh, a word we call faith, a assurance or trust in what God has promised even in spite of hopeless situations. Um, so today we're going to talk a lot about faith, um, mostly because the story we just heard with Zechariah and Elizabeth and then foreseeing John the Baptist uh, is one where we see this cycle play out almost exactly like it did with um, Abraham and Sarah again. But I think we can learn um, what it's like to wait for God in a hopeless situation. Um, and that has something to do with faith. So a few things we're going to see just to like get them in your mind before. And I actually think it's really amazing because Faye said all of these in her life story. <laughs> Um, but characteristics of what it looks like to wait in faith and hopeful expectation is one, to trust in God's timing. Uh, we're going to see that all over the place. Two is to know and believe God's words and what he's promised us. Um, third is to repent in heart and action. And uh, fourth is the example that we see a lot of, which is praying and praying being like a, a mark of faithful hope. Um, so look for these as we continue to talk about it. Uh, but go ahead and turn to Luke 1.1, 1, 1, or hopefully y'all are still there. Um, Luke begins his gospel, which is said to be about Jesus and all the things he's accomplished from the very beginning through his death and resurrection to forgive sin. Um, but in an odd way, it starts with John the Baptist and with Zachariah and Elizabeth. Um, and in verse 4, you will see he said that um, he did these writing to Theophilus and us who are reading now, um, that we would have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. So Luke's choice to talk about John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth from the very beginning uh, is to help us understand and even in the season wait and expect who is Jesus going to be um, and learn these lessons so that when Jesus comes, we're ready um, and ready to hopefully believe and uh, have even all the more confidence in the things he's promised. Um, he also says that he's like looked at 
other witnesses, um, other eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. People probably like Matthew and Mark and um, clearly others because this is a story that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And he clearly thinks it's important for us to bolster our faith. Um, so, you know, Luke very specifically tells us this. Um, and I think it's because it gives us a context for what repenting means, what turning away from ourselves and turning towards God, and what faith even would look like. So, um, I think just like we have in the, in the past, Luke is inviting us to see the story from the perspective of Zechariah to, in a way, like, enter into his world and not be, like, outside objective observers, but instead to, like, walk in his shoes and see even, the, like, comparisons to our own lives. Um, so we pick up in verse 5. Uh, Luke says of Zechariah, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, or whatever Ellen said. Um, she was probably right. And he had a wife uh, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Um, so Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, and they are barren. But they're also noted here as being righteous before God. Um, they've walked in faith before God so much so that they follow all of the commandments blamelessly <laughs> in the statutes of the Lord. Um, and I think they would just be characterized as good priests. So Zechariah is one that he's representing God before the people and the people before God, offering sacrifices, praying, uh, interceding for the people, and is doing a good job in a world that is uh, more corrupt. Uh, later in the Gospels, you see the priest in the temple called like a den of robbers instead of a place of prayer. Um, you see them called brood of vipers by his son John a little bit later. <laughs> um, so they're a good priest amongst a group of bad priests. Uh, and in verse 7, there's a, a word there, but, which seems odd because the, the, the but links the two statements before and after. So it's saying they're righteous, but they're still barren. It's like, you know, like the, do you see what I'm saying? Like the, the ideas don't quite make sense. Um, but they did in the day that Zechariah was in. Um, there was an expectation that uh, God would give blessings to his people when they were righteous and would curse them when they were unrighteous. Um, an example of this, hopefully, will come up behind me. But in Deuteronomy, when Moses, uh, who was the person who gave the law, gave commandments to his people and established a covenant, which is like a love promise between uh, God and Israel that Zechariah is trying to follow to the T, um, he mentions, uh, let's see, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord has driven you. So he sets before them, Blessings if they obey, and curses if they don't. And even foresaw that they would be going and like captivated by an evil people. Um, so Zechariah and Elizabeth have this like weird, almost like contradicting hope. Uh, according to the law which they love and have followed, 
they should have a child because they've obeyed to the T, but they are seemingly in the place of being beyond hope where it would take a miracle, a literal miracle for them to have a child. Um, and if you put yourself in that place, you'd be thinking like, God, are you just? Do you actually do what you say? Is there a reason for us to hope in these promises? And clearly they thought there was some because we learned from the story that they continue to pray. Uh, they didn't give up. They didn't try and take things into their own hands, um, but instead continued to pray and do whatever else uh, would help them have a child in the future. Um, I want you all to see that this is deeply personal and like a big part of who Zachariah is. Um, but there, there seems to be two layers to the story, like a very personal um, layer of hope and expectation, but also a larger one. Uh, just like Elizabeth is barren, the uh, city or nation of Israel around them seems to be pretty horrible. Um, I did some research into what the days of Herod looked like, and they're so bad. Uh, the, I read some Jewish historians, and it sounded like Herod's coming to power and ruling was like an HBO special, where uh, like, he's politically plotting. I think he murdered five or six political opponents. He's taxing the poor. He's stealing and kidnapping people. It's just atrocious. Um, and in some way, that like spreads into the community, where we've seen that the priests themselves are corrupted. Or um, even in the future, Herod tries to kill babies in Jerusalem to try and get rid of Jesus. So the, the day around them is, it's barren, it's horrible. Um, and for Zachariah, who's a priest, it's not very hopeful thinking, you know, what's going to come and change this? Um, especially because uh, the nation of Israel has been waiting for a savior for a long time, almost 500 years. And the last word that they've heard was 400 years before this point from uh, the prophet Malachi. And the kind of time that they expected for the Messiah to come is here. And their expectation is that before he comes, the people would be ready. They would have in some way turned back to God. There would be righteousness and justice and maybe a weakening of the political forces. But when Zechariah looks around, it doesn't look like anything's coming close to that place. Uh, if anything, it looks worse and worse. And throughout all the prophets in the Bible, when they look around and everything gets worse, they prophesied destruction and, you know, terror. Uh, so this is where Zechariah is, a faithful man that hopes in spite of hope. Um, so it might be nice to even pause and reflect and just say, like, how is he able to do this? Um, what would we do in the same situation? Um, we saw Abraham and Sarah's example of trying to, like, take it for themselves and... Um, Maybe refer, I don't know what that would look like, trying to adopt a child and have an heir that way. Um, I know in my own heart, I'm more prone to fall into a depressing despair and just be hopeless. Um, but I know that seems intense. That's the world Zachariah is living in. Um, and when we pick up on a story, that's some of what he's bringing with him. Um, if y'all will look at verse 8, when you really jump in. Um, now, 
While Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people uh, were praying outside at the hour of incense. Um, So this is a special day. Zechariah, a good and faithful man, is chosen to go burn incense. And really what this means is he is chosen to go into the deepest, most holy place in the temple that he will ever be allowed to in his life. Um, And chosen by lot, which is by chance, knowing that um, God himself presides over chance. So the priest saw this as God selecting a person to come into the most intimate place of presence uh, and burn incense. Um, So Zechariah, if you saw this with one seed, is a huge honor. Like, I'm about to do this once-in-a-lifetime amazing thing. Um, And at the same time, I'm sure it would be full of fear and (laughs) anticipation. Um, I don't know about y'all. I don't really like public speaking and get nervous about it. Just think if you're trying to represent a nation before God. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm sure his fear, anxiety, everything, emotions are all over the place. Uh, He would have gone around and tried to talk to anyone who's done it before and been like, you know, what do you do? (laughs) Uh, Be like, what did you see when you were in there? What was it like? Uh, He's probably trying to prepare. What is he going to say? What is he going to pray while he's there? Um, Trying to make himself pure and by like different rituals. Um, And then the, you know, the day comes. He's chosen by law in the morning. Some other priest would like kill a sacrifice and kind of like prepare his way in. Uh, Other people would go with him for a little bit. But as he entered into the most holy place where he's burning incense, it's just him. Uh, he's all alone before God. Um, he's got some coals to help with incense, some stuff to put on to burn, um, and walks into a room by himself. In front of him, a large golden uh, altar of incense, which I think there might be a picture of. Yeah, it looks wild to me. It's a very different day than <laughs> it is now. Um, and in this, everything about it is a visual Um, and like a metaphoric representation of what it is like for the nation to pray before God, for their prayer to be like smoke that rises up um, before God and visuals, images, flowers, gold everywhere to remind you are in God's very presence. Um, So he goes into this place. um, Curtain before him is the Holy of Holies where none would dare go. Um, only the high priest once a year. So he's in fear, going, he's prepared, he's prayed, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, there appeared an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Uh, An angel just showed up there. (laughs) Thought he was alone, and all of a sudden, there's this angel. And angel's I mean, always seem to be responded to with great fear, so they must be glorious. Um, terrifying and how, like, brilliant they are. Um, and the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Uh, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will joy- rejoice at his birth. Uh, for he will be great before the Lord. Um, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, 
and he will turn uh, many of the children to Israel, uh, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I want you all to think for a moment, how much of that did you just retain? Uh, if I hadn't read this a ton in the last week, I probably would have gotten like a few words. But Zachariah is here terrified. Also has just heard his greatest hope for himself and maybe the greatest hope for the nation has just been realized and has been told these words from God, but just think of what's going on. He's afraid. He's amazed. He's maybe joyful, hopeful, but then also trying to be dutiful and pay attention. Um, and is told that he is going to have great joy and gladness, that Elizabeth and him are going to have a child. But more than that, the child's going to be great. No one in Israel's history has ever been full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. Um, it's a mark of something powerful and new happening. Um, there's going to be wonder from everyone. And more, the it keep, talks a lot about him turning the hearts of people to God, him turning the hearts of people to each other. Uh, I think that's really similar to what we, what Faye described well when she talked about repentance, a turning away from yourself and a turning towards God. Uh, and Elijah, I'm sure, heard some of this, is excited. Um, and, you know, there, it's hard to really know what it was like for him. Um, it's really easy to see the layer of what it means for him and his wife Elizabeth. But there, that last sentence is weird. Um, he, and he will go before him in the spirit. Who's he and who's him? John the Baptist goes before him. Who's him? Uh, like, he's like, angel, don't you want to be a little more specific? <laughs> uh, and then in the spirit of power, in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, disobedient to wisdom of the just make ready for a people, uh, feels cryptic, but um, something probably, I don't know if y'all have read a lot of the Bible, but as you read and the Bible keeps on going, sometimes you hear stuff and you're like, that's familiar. I've heard that before. I say anytime you feel that way, you should go look it up, <laughs> see the context of the original. Um, and the, this like words ringing in his ears actually come from Malachi, the very last prophet of the Bible to speak. So if you turn to Matthew 1.1, which is the first gospel, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is how I know to find Malachi. This is the first word about who Jesus is, who we would celebrate at Christmas. And then you turn back just one page, which for y'all is 7.54, and then go to the very, very end um, I'll start reading from verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb before all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I know not the best commentary, but that's wild. <laughs> Um, but I think really what we see here is that Elijah is going to continue where God left off. 
the section at the end of Malachi was like the last word of the Old Testament. Um, and people understood that like before the day of the Lord, there's going to be this herald that comes. I think of like uh, when a king walks into a room, they never just like walk in by themselves. Before they go, someone comes with a trumpet and blasts it and gets everyone's attention and then says, hey, are y'all ready? Pay attention, the king's walking in. Um, John the Baptist is that herald who's saying, hey, are y'all ready? The king's walking in. Um, and it even goes a little further and tells us a bit of how he's preparing the people, which is that repentance, that turn of heart. Um, and both a turn of heart to God, but also a turn of heart back to each other, to their families, the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. Um, and this actually becomes characteristic of exactly what John the Baptist goes on to preach and prepare people. Remember, we saw in Luke that John the Baptist is helping us even prepare for the day that Jesus comes. Um, and we've seen that it has something to do with repentance and faith. When John the Baptist comes, his message um, is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and even Jesus, as he begins his ministry, says the same, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And from John, from Zechariah, we're getting an idea of like, this is how we prepare for the Lord's coming. This is what it looks like to wait in faith for Jesus. Um, we get a little more flesh on the bones later in Luke. Uh, Luke 3.10 says, The crowds came to John the Baptist and asked, uh, What then shall we do? And he said, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And never as food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came and asked, What shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked, what should we do? And he said, don't extort money um, from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And this, it says in verse 18, was seen as good news for the people. Um, so this isn't just an abstract, oh, I gotta like change my emotions inside and repent. It's one of the things that moves into action. It's very practical of turn your heart towards God so that you love and want to help your neighbor. Uh, there can be a distance that I feel like, again, Faith talked about when you abstract principles like this. But repentance is a really real, practical thing. Um, and if we want to be ready for the day that Jesus comes, it's one of the ways we get ready. Um, so Zechariah has heard all this. There's still an angel in front of him. We don't know how much of this he understood. <laughs> uh, and I really would love to know if he just blurted out a response or if he sat there, because he's an old man, sat there and thought about it and molded over. Um, but responded to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Um, it's either hasty or a very bold thing to ask because <laughs> there is a angel of the Lord sitting in front of him. Like in some ways, what more could you see or want that would convince you? Uh, if you're like, I want to see that tree turn on fire, like, is that going to be more convincing than God himself sharing with you? Um, and even more, Zechariah has all of the Old Testament to look at. He has example after example after example of God's faithfulness to his people. Um, and because of this, the angel responds to him in verse 18 and says, uh, sorry, verse 19. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. 
and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the, the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Um, maybe not the main point of this, but something that really struck me as I read is I often could be like Zechariah and hear good news, but because of my skepticism, like distance myself from it. And the, the good news turns from what it should be, a fulfilled hope that turns to joy, uh, and instead kind of like rots. Um, and maybe like Zechariah, it turns into questioning and confusion and concern. Uh, I had a friend when I lived in Houston who met at a coffee shop, <laughs> just randomly talked. He was from Eritrea. And I remember asking him one day while we were eating dinner together and was like, hey, what? Uh, what in your life do you think you could have that would give you the most joy? He thought about it for a bit, and he was like, I think if I had a Lamborghini, I would, my life would be fulfilled. I would be content. Uh, and I was like, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> like, you drive a Lamborghini an hour a day. Say you think about it another two hours a day. What are you going to do with the other 19? <laughs> or don't do, don't do the math. <laughs> 21? There you go. Um, and I was like, pushing a little hard, and I was like, no, really, what do you think gives you the most joy in life? And I won't forget, he said, I really love it when I hear good news. Uh, it's the best experience of my life is hearing good news. Uh, but we had just got done with me explaining to him who Jesus was for two hours. And he was like, I don't like this at all. It can't be true. And I remember saying, no, this is the best news. And he said, no, it's a little too good to be believed. Uh, so there's a, a bit of wondering here of like, is that something we can do? Is that what Zachariah is doing? Seeing his hope fulfilled and being like, no, this can't be true. Um, being jaded by the harsh world around and saying, no, God doesn't really come through on his promises. Um, hope when it's not fulfilled is damaging. It hurts. Um, it's like heart sickness. But hope that's fulfilled is the only way to have real true joy. And that joy comes through Jesus. Um, also, though, he asks for a sign, and though it's kind of a punishing sign, he still gets a sign. <laughs> um, and it's a, I think it's an amazing act of graciousness and kindness to Zechariah that uh, he's confirming and the, the promises that he's made uh, in some way sticks it with him so that he will be reminded. But in the way God does, it's not... It seems to have some like poetic justice to it too. Uh, like his son's going to be the voice person that prepares a way for the Lord, but you can't speak. Uh, hey, we haven't heard any prophetic voice in a long time, but now that you've got one, I'm not going to let you really communicate it that well. <laughs> uh, but I also think there's another lay of graciousness that it's preparing Zechariah to prepare John the Baptist, who will prepare a way for Jesus. Um, there's a... An, Oh, gosh. I didn't write it down. Let's see if I remember. I think it's Hosea uh, 5. Six? Cool. Uh, <laughs> um, they talk about returning, like, the people returning back to God. The thing John the Baptist is doing is trying to, like, bring about repentance. Um, and they say in verse 1, For he has torn us that he may heal us, and he struck us down, and he'll bind us up. Um, and so even with Zachariah, there's a bit of, he's, <laughs> he's been punished. He's been torn down, but it's for the purpose of healing. Um, 
and the, the angel promises him that the good news is going to be fulfilled in this time. Um, and I think, too, even the next scene we see shows some of Zachariah's belief and joy. Uh, he comes out of the temple. They're wondering, like, why has he been in there for so long? Because uh, usually people are pretty punctual, I guess. Um, and then he came out and was unable to speak. I love to just to imagine him trying to communicate whatever he just saw. He's full of joy. He also can't speak. And how do you mime or like charade out Elijah or the Holy Spirit or half of what's said? Um, but he also is faithful and continues to do his duty as a priest until he leaves, uh, showing more of his faith. But it's quiet. And in that quietness, you have got to think he's just mulling over these words trying to understand, and will later go on and teach John, this is who you are. Uh, this is what you're going to come do. I think Elizabeth, who's the last person we observe, gets it a little more right. Um, it says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. So God saw her. She took away her reproach from the people, but Elizabeth didn't go away and, or sorry, she didn't seem to go away to hide her pregnancy because it's the first five months. Like, at least I don't actually know that much about pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> I think for a few, at least you're not going to show. <laughs> uh, it seems, though, that she went to spend time with the Lord to meditate. Uh, and to somewhat do what Zachariah was doing and see how she also would take part in preparing a way for the Lord. Um, and as we leave our text today, we're in their kind of same position. Quiet. Thinking, meditating, pondering, and waiting for the coming of Jesus, both metaphorically, because Christmas is coming, um, and even now we have more expectation of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. There's a miraculous birth and an old woman giving birth. What's it going to look like when a virgin gives birth? Who is that person going to be? Um, we got a little taste of even how glorious John's birth is, but he considered himself nothing compared to Jesus. Uh, and soon we're going to see really what it looks like when the glory of Jesus comes. Um, and have learned a little bit of how to do the waiting and the process. But there's also a day, as Ellen mentioned well, that we're waiting for when Jesus' glory is going to be even greater than when he came the first time. And it's when he comes back to save and take his people in a day where there won't be sin anymore. And uh, the world not being horrible like in the day of Herod will actually be righteous and just. Um, and in the place we are today, I think we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's example and do the same things they did, to trust in God's timing. Um, when Jesus came, he didn't come too late or too early. He came at the perfect time. Um, even, I mean, the amount of stuff I could look at to do research for today is a testament that Jesus came at the right time when we could know and believe what he said. Um, the extent and how fast the gospel moved through the nations showed that he came at the right time. Uh, and he's going to come back at the right time. Uh, we're to know and trust God's words like Zechariah should have, like Abraham did. Uh, and our promises now are a little different than they were then. And we'll talk some about that.
then also a way we prepare now, I think, is still through repenting, um, through living holy and godly lives before God. Um, it's not just something you do once and then are saved. It's something you continue to do. Um, and we also today should be praying earnestly for Jesus' return. Um, I think Second Peter says it really well, uh, a writer in the New Testament, also understanding kind of all this and looking forward to what it's going to be like when uh, Jesus returns, says this. Is it behind me? Oh, that's small. Sorry. Uh, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, you know, the Jewish people waited 500 years for Jesus to come, uh, and even in Jesus' day, many people thought that he would come back soon in the next month or in their lifetime. It's been 2,000 years now. Um, and some of us may want to feel like God is being slow, but he's not being slow. Uh, and we actually see his continued graciousness that it is so more people can come into his kingdom. Uh, part of this is God deserves more worship and glory than we can give. More than this room at Ridgetop, we can sing our hearts out. God deserves way more than we could ever give him. Uh, and part of that is we have even responsibility to share his message just like Zechariah, John, all the people before us have shared and prepared a way for Jesus. Um, and this is done wishing for people to repent, teaching them how and preparing them to turn away from themselves and turn to God. Uh, and also for us, turning away from ourselves and turning towards God. Uh, another is that it continues, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I think of Zechariah when he was praying, and then all of a sudden there's an angel there. Uh, in the same way, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Uh, and it coming like a thief, a thief doesn't wait until you're ready. Uh, a thief actually comes the moment you're not ready. Uh, they come without you knowing, and so also our expectation of this, Jesus can come back at any time, and we don't know. Um, or if not, the hard truth is that our chance to repent could end at any moment. Um, but if we jump to the end, verse 11, it points out that, you know, the end hasn't come yet. And as we wait, what sort of people ought we be as we wait? Should live lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. So even more by like repenting, trusting Jesus, uh, we're actually hastening Jesus' return. Uh, we're not just passively waiting, stewing in our anxieties, <laughs> uh, but we're, we're working towards the day that Jesus comes back and makes everything right. There's something inside of us that is, looks around just like uh, Zachariah did and is like the world is and like it should be. Um, and is expecting and craving the day where Jesus comes and makes all things right. This should empower us to go serve and turn away from sin and trust Jesus. Um, in verse 13, it says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
And this is the, the new promise that we have. It's not that Jesus will come and do something about sin, because he's already done that. Um, and actually invites us to trust him, to have faith, and to repent and turn away from our sins. Uh, but our promise is that he's going to come back and get us one day. Um, that he's actually going to give us eternal life with him, characterized by joy and peace. Um, and we know that God isn't slow to fulfill his promises. Um, and so we should try and hasten that day. It's a good day. <laughs> um, in a way that we wait even now. Uh, another way that we hasten the day is told in Matthew 24. Um, he talks about how in the last days it's going to be wicked. Just like in the days of Zechariah, it seems like it's always been the case. Um, but also in verse 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations before the end comes, or and the end will come. Uh, so another way we hasten Jesus' return is by sharing his message with all peoples. Um, and this, is, again, is something that we should want and be driven to do. Um, so in the season, let's seek holiness and godliness, seek repentance, seek God's kingdom, and trust in his word, and wait prayerfully. Um, I think that's maybe like the big picture, but it, even with Zachariah's story, there's kind of like the big picture and then the very personal picture. And God also really cares about how these same themes play out in personal, everyday situations. Um, we see that as God looked on Elizabeth, he noticed her individual, personal needs, um, and maybe even though felt slow, gave her even more joy because of the waiting. Um, God also cares about the small, seemingly small, or personal things in your life, in all of our lives. Um, so I think even as we go into the holiday season, we're prone for a lot of unfulfilled hopes. Um, like I know a lot of people are working until the 24th and look at their workplaces and they're like, this is unjust. I'm being taken advantage of. Uh, this isn't the way God wants it to be. And so what are we going to do in the, in the waiting? Do we trust that God will come and isn't, you know, a passive distant God that actually cares and will um, provide for us in those places. Uh, maybe it's loneliness. I know, especially for a lot of the single people, Christmas time can be very lonely, even though you're supposed to spend time with family. It's isolating. Um, but God says that it's not good for people to be alone and that he even uh, prepares for lonely people a place and a home. Um, I know for a lot, there's scars you're walking into with family, uh, relationships that you feel like can't heal or, you know, don't seem to have any progress. Um, God also cares and gives hope in these things. Um, in the book we're reading, Desiring God, he talks about Psalm 50, verse 15, which says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And talks about how praying, even in these moments, for the things that seem small, uh, aren't selfish or, um, you know, like just completely self-centered, but are actually a way that we go about glorifying God, showing that we're not trying to trust our own devices, but instead are putting our hope and faith in him um, with trust that he will deliver us. And at that moment, there will be joyous glory, uh, praising what he's done for us. Um, 
I think of the season not too long ago for me, I was uh, lived in an apartment alone for a while and was starting to feel the weight of loneliness from being there. And then also uh, had gone to a church that was dissolving and just was like, man, I feel, going to God and thinking, I feel lonely and I feel like, God, you don't care. Um, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to serve. And why do you not seem to care about my needs? And read Psalm 68, 8, uh, which is the, the Lord puts the solitary in a home. And it was like, no, this is what your word says. So, like, this doesn't make sense. I should have a home. And saw it and was like, okay, maybe I'm not working hard enough for it. So I went and, like, <laughs> talked to people and applied for leases and all kinds of stuff and then looked at a bunch of different churches and then realized that my efforts weren't getting me anywhere uh, and went back to the Lord in hope and prayed. And it took some time, but eventually landed with Ridgetop. And it felt more at peace in this place than I have anywhere before. Uh, and at a house with Ren and Noah, which is probably the best living situation I've ever been in. <laughs> um, but also a moment where I saw that God cared about my immediate individual circumstance. Um, yeah. So I think with this in mind, one of the, another way that we wait for Jesus' return and wait well is by taking communion. Um, and I forgot to look it up. Can someone tell me where it is in 1 Corinthians? Okay. <laughs> it says it really well, and I think I'd mess it up. Yeah, here we go. Um, Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Uh, take this and remember, rinse of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and bread, the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, so also in this time, as we take the bread and cup, we are proclaiming Jesus' death uh, and his new resurrection life. Um, we ask that uh, people don't take the cup and drink unless you have uh, made that, made Jesus the Lord of your life and um, accepted, turned to him in faith and repentance.